Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. This week, it's a spoiler-packed interview with the creators of Station to Station. We're talking David Bowie, memory, conspiracy thrillers, memory, and the dread pull of that briny deep, baby. That's all coming up on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. We have got a doozy of an interview for you today with Andrea Clausen and Alex Yoon, the creators of Station to Station, a podcast from Procyon, the representation-focused network with the adorable star-faring raccoon in its logo. We played episode one of Station to Station for you last week, and as a warning, this interview contains some spoilers for season one. We shied away from some of the most load-bearing stuff, but there are a few character surprises in there that we do discuss. Your mileage may vary on how much this actually bothers you, so if it does, stop here and listen to the whole dang show first. It's cool. I'll wait. I mean, this is like the whole point of RDR. I curate the thing, you listen to the thing, you like the thing, you tell your friends about the thing. So, seriously, I got the time if you got the time. Summertime And the living is easy Fish are jumping And the cotton is hot Oh, you're back. Hello! Good! My sustain is terrible. Now that you're all set, either in your desire to forge ahead and brave the spoiler sea, or you've listened to Station to Station at least once, let's do this thing. Here's the interview. Alex Yoon, Andrea Clausen, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. I'm so glad you could make it. Thank you. Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you for having us. I'm so glad we could work out the time differences. <laughs> welcome to our lives. I'm sure. How did how did the two of you meet? Because Alex, you live in Hong Kong. Andrea, you live in British Columbia most of the time. How did how did the two of you become friends and creative partners? Um, I think the funny part is that we didn't really become friends until after we had already agreed to become creative partners and to do this big time suck project together. <laughs> um, we were. On a Slack that a few other people in Procyon had also created, Jess Best from Starship Iris uh, and Phoebe Siders and Margaret Clark from Under Pressure that was just talking about other podcasts that we had feelings about. And um, somewhere along the way, we started throwing out podcast ideas and we both happened to like the same one. And we'd sort of talked, we talked a little bit, but we didn't really know each other super, super well when we agreed to do this. <laughs> So much of the Procyon shows so far have involved like research voyages, whether whether they're in space or on the ocean or under the ocean. And my question about that is, did that just sort of coalesce um, naturally or was that always part of your plan for this phase of the network? No, I think that was just, I wouldn't say it was a complete coincidence. I think um, it was a coincidence that Iris and Station to Station sort of coalesced and happened to be both about research. 
Station to Station, when I first pitched it, I was inspired by a, a scientist friend of mine who actually does these cruises once a year. She, you know, she goes out to sea on retest cruises for two, three, four weeks. And, and, you know, the idea of being on a limited space, talking to limited people with no internet and on limited, on very limited topics, that to me strikes me either as a situational comedy or as a situational horror. And when, when we, when I first pitched the idea of station it was kind of a situational comedy with a dash of horror and then as we developed it we sort of moved towards horror more and more when we started world building and adding in the horror elements we just thought let's just make this a conspiracy thriller and as we were discussing you know the the plot and the story one branch of it was shot off to become under pressure and then one branch of it shut off to become station to station. Yeah, they got sort of the cheerful ocean adventures and we got the creepy shit on boats. <laughs> so that's why we both have um, science-related podcasts, all three of us. We have joked about whether or not, like, if we do a second round of Procyon shows, if they all need to be thematic again in a few different ways. So you never know. What's the proposed theme for the next one? Oh, um, I feel like history is one of them where we've all talked about doing like things that are set in different places on the timeline that aren't contemporary or or like there's enough random Shakespeare spinoff ideas that you could probably just do an entire Procyon at the Globe sort of series. <laughs> there's a very, very large Google document. Like, would you do adaptations of like sequels to? Like, what are some of the, if you're at liberty to divulge, what are some of the ideas? Shakespeare in space, I think, was something that we have entertained very seriously. <laughs> well, semi-seriously. As seriously as we entertain any of the other 25 ideas in that Google Doc. Is the name Miranda for Miranda Chuan, is that is that a Tempest reference? Or is that just a name that you like? Or is it related to something else? No, that's just, no, that's not a Tempest reference. Oh, that would have been so good if it had been a Tempest reference. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about references. Because I spent some of today listening to the David Bowie record from 1976, Station to Station. And I, I was listening to the title track for a little bit and just trying to luxuriate in its funky unsettlingness. Was was there something that you took from that song or that album that you wanted to put into the audio drama? Um, I think the title was me, I'm pretty sure. Um, I love that particular song, Station to Station, when I was like... Uh, intern reporter home for the summer depressed and biking around my neighborhood to smoke a lot secretly I would listen to just like station to station on repeat um so for me it is always like a song about like moody containment and being sort of stuck and isolated in one place personally and just the sort of off-kilter nature of it I really like for what the show ended up becoming but part of it was also that um (laughs) In the way that sometimes things have really banal kind of origins that Under Pressure wanted to call itself Under Pressure. And we were like, we should have a David Bowie title too. <laughs> it just ended up fitting, like I think even better than we originally kind of thought it would when we pitched it. Yeah, there, I, I don't want to necessarily read too much into this if I'm completely off base. But I wanted to zero in on some lyrics in that song and see if there was anything you pulled out of there. Um 
From where dreams are woven, bending sound, dredging the ocean lost in my circle, here am I, flashing no color, tall in this room overlooking the ocean. Yeah, like the vibe at least definitely is what for me I really pulled from. And also, I'll be honest, it's not a side effect of the cocaine. I'm thinking it must be love is sort of like a little bit Riva and Nelly in terms of like high anxiety crush stuff to me. <laughs> uh-huh. How how spoilery do we want to get in this interview? Because I feel like I want to play episode one and Riva and Nelly aren't like even in it. <laughs> fixtures in in that at all. I mean, we can t- we can talk about it because I know I know that their relationship is like representationally important to you. I'm shipper trash, David. You can say it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't gonna say it. What, what what do you mean? What do you mean shipper trash though? Like what is the what's the origin of the relationship of those two characters? Oh, um I just genuinely, before they were really characters, Alex said, I want to have an FBI agent and a journalist, spoilers, um, in our podcast to round out our sort of main characters. And I went, I think they should date. Oh, no, I really like this. Now we have to do it. Nice. <laughs> but, no, um, my my joke is that I'm, like, the number one sort of relationship booster for every show on the network. If there's a ship, I'll stand it. Um, I do a little behind-the-scenes thing for uh, Starship Iris for their Patreons. And we have a section of the interview podcast that's just called Shipping News. <laughs> <gasps> that's one of my favorite books. I know. <laughs> It's also a great way to talk about romances. Anyway, um, that's great. And also very much in line with the logo of your podcast network. In that you are a ship in trash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so tell me more about the, the, the vibe of that record and what, you know, what you pulled from it and... And, and then I'll get off this topic because I, I know that part of it was just like a gag, but I also think there's some interesting stuff to mine from your experiences with that album that might have leaked into the show. I just want to say up front that I'm actually not like a huge Bowie fan. I listen to the classics and the, the, the greatest hits and that's kind of like, that's kind of it in terms of my experience with Bowie. It's all a hundred from this point on. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, some of it is just like to get really deep and meaningful about the lyrics, not so much, but so much as the experience of if you've ever tried listening to Station to Station, just the song, like four times in a row, you end up in a really interesting headspace that I think is kind of accurate to the podcast. Yeah. I, so I did it twice in a row today. Mm-hmm. I spent 20 minutes listening to that song mm-hmm. and I felt that it was kind of accelerating me towards this claustrophobic mania. That feels about right. <laughs> How would you how would you characterize that feeling? Yeah, because it's it does so many different things at so many different points. I mean, just the investment of time and mental energy that goes into listening to a 10-minute song is sort of immense in a way that I think you don't think about as much if you are more of a radio edit person. And just like once you laser in on the song and you've listened to it for a couple of times or many times while biking and secret smoking, <laughs> um, you do just you end up in a God, claustrophobic mania is so good, David. How dare you? Thank you. But yeah, you you do end up just feeling like there's so much going on and you're being bombarded with so many things, but also there's just like so much empty, static isolation at the same time too. Mm-hmm. Alex, let's turn to you because I want to I want to talk about what you. I, I had a I had a writing professor named Marshall Klimashevsky who always liked to talk about what he called euphemistically portable craft. 
right? Like, what do you like? What do you like to steal from other people and incorporate into your own creative works? Was there anything in particular that you were like, oh, I want to try that, but my way? Um, in terms of the show, I think it's... Um I describe it as a, a sort of a contained conspiracy thriller. I loved conspiracy thriller for, for years and years and years. Just the genre itself. I think there's something about um, the oppressive sort of atmosphere in conspiracy thriller, that knowing that there's someone larger than you after you and you don't know who it is and you don't know what it is. And so sort of just reducing that into a limited space, a boat in the middle of the ocean, and you know that... There's something on there trying to kill and slash or harm you. And the idea that there are people on the boat with you who are in on it and are in on the plan and are most likely a direct cause of all the chaos and all the suffering. That was my take on the um, classical conspiracy thriller. So I know what excited you about the idea of a conspiracy thriller. What what disappoints you about that genre, and what did you want to get right about it in your execution this time? Oh, I can think of one thing that you might want to talk about, which is a personal frustration we've talked about, which is when shows are more in love with deepening the conspiracy than explaining the conspiracy. Yeah. like To me, a lot of them have very unsatisfying endings. It's hard for me to actually like give a concrete example of what I'm talking about but I think when it ends it feels like very few things have been resolved like so the protagonist survives they know what's going on they know the whole network and giant you know red string of crazy and where it all leads but there's very little closure in terms of um, I guess personal development and personal trauma of the whole thing the conspiracy is over, you're no longer on the run, you're no longer being hunted, and now you just go back to your normal lives. And, you know, what we're trying to do with season two is, um, I guess, just delve into what it's like to be back in real life after everything that's happened and still try to reconciliate with the whole emotional and mental drain that the characters have been through. Yeah, I think in this story, and this is kind of a spoilery thing to say, but I think you've you've hit upon something that's more terrifying than death, and that's just obliteration, mm-hmm. mm. right? Like, what drove you to that consequence being at the center of this conspiracy, of being, like, erased from time? It's interesting, because we both talked about this somewhat after the fact, but I think we both have, like, sort of interesting, weird histories with like memory loss in our families. In my case, uh, my mom basically doesn't remember any of her childhood because if you fall off enough horses and sustain enough head trauma, apparently that just sort of goes away. So I've had like conversations with her that are totally terrifying where she's like, oh yeah, no, I know I was a kid. I know I was happy. I have photos that prove it. Do I remember anything before I'm about 16? Not really. And when you kind of have that stuff in your mind, I think it's it's really kind of wild to think about. And to me, it's one of the scariest things, especially also family history of dementia, which I'm pretty sure is common for a lot of people. Like once you see that once, there there are not a lot of things that scare me more than the idea of just not having the brain that you think you have and not being able to trust your own mind. This is a very different take on it, but I think it's a mechanic that is pretty relatable to a lot of people in terms of real-world experiences that sort of track. Yeah, that's pretty much it. 
I, we also have a family of um, history of Alzheimer's that runs through my family from my mother's side. And um, it sort of terrifies me that the reality you know is actually just a, like a creation of your own mind or even the memory that you know is just something that's been warped by your own mind. And the fact that you don't even have control of that, that there's an outside force manipulating it or otherwise otherwise influencing you in ways you don't even know how and in ways you're not even aware of and have no control over. That is something that terrifies me, that the, uh, the fact that, you know, my idea of reality can shift so drastically and so suddenly with no input from myself. It's just the loss of agency over your own mind is horrifying. And I think as a narcissistic artist, the idea of being very easily forgotten is also pretty scary. I do. Th- it's something that I know I've definitely been scared by. The idea that, you know, one generation out, nobody will know that you existed. And the idea that that could sort of forcibly happen regardless of what you've tried to do to prevent it is, is a little freaky to me personally. Sure. I was curious about what motivated the decision to cast Dr. Chuan as two people. Well, that's a spoiler, isn't it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a spoiler. I mean, yeah, that's a big spoiler. That's a big season one spoiler, David. Okay. <laughs> okay, so the production decision um, was that one of the actors, Joe, is a close friend of mine, and she's been a close friend of mine for years and years and years. And I really wanted to work with her. So I found a way to work her into the story as alternate Miranda Tran. But I mean, the idea of having two voices for Miranda, that was something that I've been sort of playing with before we cast her. The actual like story explanation is not something <laughs> I can tell you because that's a big part of the finale. Right, 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 right. I also almost think it would be harder to describe <laughs> than it is to listen to. <laughs> I was just so curious about Joe's voiceover breaking into the narrative early in the show. I don't know, because I, I feel like you've crafted this really dense, challenging, and I don't mean that pejoratively at all. Like what what I mean to say is that station to station like reveals more of itself to I'm on I'm on my third, I just finished my third listen. Um, and I feel like every time it reveals more of itself to me. And there are still some things that are opaque. And again, I don't mean that as like a critique. I'm just fascinated by it mm-hmm. and 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 trying to wrap my head around what all of it is intended to mean. I mean, it is supposed to be opaque. We explained the bulk of the conspiracy ab- aboard the boat in season one, but we have to leave some stuff on season two. Audio, like just from the point of view of um, audio design and audio engineering, I had a lot of fun just playing with voice distortion and um, how to represent the kind of time erasure in just solely through audio, which is actually a lot easier to do than if we also had a visual element. Because, you know, when you're listening to an audio drama, the only representation of the characters you have is through your headphones. And for me, if I distort that voice, it's like I'm distorting the entire character, the person itself. Right. So in episode three and four, when Miranda and Nelly are in you know, the belly of the beast, in the underlevels of the boat, and um, you sort of hear them 
being affected by the time erasing, time warping thing and just on the very edge of being erased. That's the most fun I had, <laughs> distorting audio. That, that's when I have to think about as an audio editor, how to represent the kind of weirdness and, and the sci-fi horror that we want to have at the heart of the production, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it kind of calls the entire diegesis into question. Because I'm like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what I'm listening to anymore. I don't know whose story it is. You know, like who's, who is exerting what control over the thing that I'm hearing? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I found that really unsettling and cool. Right. I, I mean, we started as a very typical autodrama format with three characters recording into the recording devices, and then, you know, the big reveal at the end is that it's not what we're hearing. It's not actually the tape or the wire that they have or even the the digital recording that they're actually recording into that's not the compiled version that we're listening to it's something else entirely it's something else has is recording them so and this is a spoilery question that we're probably going to cut so the, <laughs> the diegesis of the show is a composite made by the jude engine sort of yeah okay yeah is is the Jude engine named for something in particular, or is that just a sound that sounded cool? It sounded cool. I think it yeah originally it was named for something, and then I I thought you know it's okay it's too close to actual science, in actual real life science experiments, and I didn't really want to go there. I didn't want to sort of overlap with actual real life science projects. So I thought you know what this is this is a cool name. It it could be that I was, you know, as I was reading up on um, theoretical physics stuff, well, reading up, just browsing Wikipedia, falling down the Wikipedia <laughs> hole of um, theoretical physics buzzwords, something sort of got stuck in my head. And this is actually a real project or a real person that I named it after. I love that just because of the parts of the show we write, we ended up researching such very different branches of science, because mostly now I just know about Arctic Ocean life. <laughs> And still very little about the actual, like, science that theoretically underpins our show. That's really funny. I also know how to make a boat engine stop. How do you make a boat engine stop? Well, I feel like anything I said I was going to put me on watch lists. (laughs) I mean, how to make a boat engine stop in a way that you can turn it back on. (laughs) Which is that there are kill switches. Oh, okay. Andrea, how has your experience as a journalist played into writing Nelly? Um, I think it's going to actually be more of a thing in the second season than it was in the first season. In the first season, it's just a case of, um, I know a lot of reporters and I kind of know where you can push the boundaries of personality on reporters who are generally, um, interesting personalities. <laughs> what What is a journalist's personality? Um, I mean, inquisitive is a big part of it, but also I just think there's a certain sort of brand of humor in journalism that you end up with just to sort of alleviate the weirdness of the profession. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true across any sort of profession where you end up in like strange circumstances a lot. I imagine EMTs have like terrifying in-jokes, mm-hmm. but it just meant like I felt really, really comfortable writing her instantly because I've known a lot of a lot of journalists that I could kind of like steal small personality elements from. But I think season two is where it's going to be a bigger thing because a big part of sort of figuring out Nellie's arc for season two for me was sitting down and going, okay, if I were her and I was going to try to like actually write all this now, 
what would I do? And then sort of slowly curling up into a ball in panic, (laughs) which is not to give too much away, but not that far off from where we're going to start with her. Oh no. (laughs) You know, it's, it was, it was also things like um, me sort of frantically IMing Alex to be like, we need to talk about how freelance journalists do money in the context of station to station. (laughs) And things like that. So, I mean, it it was really good for coming up with plot hooks for her. It is not hard to think of real world obstacles to throw at Nellie. So your Twitter bio right now says you're on sabbatical from your normal newspaper, Kamloops, this week. Yep. Is Station to Station season two the primary thing you're working on? It is right now. Um, Partially because I am in another country where they will get very angry at me if I I do any real work. (laughs) Not that this is not real work. If I do any work that the U.S. government considers work that I'm taking away from Americans, to be specific. So right now I'm really mostly just focusing on getting some of our early episodes out and figuring things out with Alex for what comes next. Cool. Alex, why are the episode titles named for business terms? Starting in episode three, the episode descriptions define each one twice, one in the bland business way and then in ways that are more specific to the story. Um, I I can read one out just so that the audience has um, context. Right, yeah. Okay, Uh, episode three, analysis paralysis. One, the state of overanalyzing or overthinking a situation so that a decision or action is never taken. Two, the thin thread between fear and validation at the event horizon of finding answers. Also, a map, a corridor, a memory. Miranda goes exploring. I think that one was Andrea's. That one was Andrea's episode, and I think I'm pretty sure that Andrea was the one who named it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how we started with the business terms. I do have a weird fascination for business jargon, but I think the way we started was that uh, we named episode 10 first because that was like the earliest one that we planned out. I knew what I wanted to do for the finale. I knew the basic gist of the plot and what I wanted to have. And I knew already that I wanted to name it the cost of doing business. So we took that and we worked backwards and it sort of just came naturally that the rest of the episode should also be named for business jargon. Simply because they are very versatile. Like unless you are in the industry or in this specific field and sector, business jargon is really just nonsense words. And corporate obfuscation is such a big sort of backgrounder to the story. It is. And there is such just a sort of a clinical feeling to all the business jargon that we see, that we that we use and we listen to. And I guess, you know, to me, just, just, just sort of perverting that in a sense was very fun. Just giving it a whole new meaning because it's not like, you know, the, the average listener can... Um, and decipher what attention metrics means or what exit opportunity, the, you know, the exact precise meaning and context of exit opportunity. So let's sort of take that back and let's use that for an artistic form to well, use it as the way language was intended to use. It's actually really almost a bit like naming poetry because so many of these things mean things that are so specific that they're essentially meaningless. So (laughs) trying to match them to whatever you're actually doing narratively is a really interesting kind of fun thought experiment. Hmm. Yeah. Do y'all have favorite pieces of meaningless business jargon? Oh, man. Let me pull up the list. 
Oh my god. We keep a we keep a running list because you know business jargon is easiest to think about when you don't need it. So we always have like little lists on the go of things that we could use when we're writing episodes. Some of them are so gory is the fascinating part. Oh god. The first one that pulled up on the list that I usually go to is 800 pound gorilla and I always forget how silly that one is. <laughs> according according to according to this particular um, jargon explainer, an 800 pound gorilla is apparently like a force to be reckoned with if you're an asshole. <laughs> I thought it was like a white elephant. I thought it was like a thing that you like a a liability that everyone's like avoiding talking about. No, apparently an 800 pound gorilla is just like panache. It is. Ugh. I don't know. I guess uh, nothing mm, means anything. We're gonna give him a. We're gonna give him an eight hundred pound gorilla in season two. <laughs> Probably not. Almost certainly not. Oh, the one I was actually thinking of that I always think is extra sinister is Bleeding Edge. Oh, yeah. I, I, this is something that I recently found called "one throat to choke," and it's about. Um, it's an expression used in business to, to describe the advantage of purchasing goods or integrated services from a single vendor. That way, when something goes wrong, there's only one throat to choke, which is, I mean, psychopathic, I think. I just, I don't think I'd want to go into business with anyone. That's like, hey, do you want to be the supplier for like the Dark Lord of the Sith? American Psycho Incorporated? Sure. (laughs) Procyon's mission is to make content that includes characters that don't get a lot of popular media representation. Who were you most concerned with representing in Station to Station? Like I said before, um, from the beginning, and this is technically spoilers, but I don't care. Um, I really wanted us to do um, a storyline about two of the main characters being romantically involved. I guess it's probably better to say than they should date because it's it's moving much slower than that. <laughs> because there's this plot thing that we keep having to deal with. It's really very inconvenient. Just how it slips right in there. I'm bi and I really, really wanted to do a bi character because it's been really meaningful for me when they have turned up in other audio media that has been really important to me. And I love writing a good bisexual monologue a lot. <laughs> so that's a thing you have to look forward to in later episodes, guys. Oh, Yeah. Um, yeah, the other thing, I got it kind of into my head um, fairly early on in the process of coming up with our characters that I really wanted to try to do a story about. Oh, this one is a big spoiler. Uh, That's okay. Oh, well, proceed with caution. Um, that I wanted to try to do a story about a character who was um, lesbian but didn't come to that decision super early for a lot of reasons related to, you know, personal history and cultural heteronormativity and all of that business. But I feel like when you do see those stories in media, just because of kind of the nature of how personal essay industrial complex works, you don't really get what happens after people kind of get to that point and realize that about themselves and go through that journey. So just telling that story about somebody, but also telling that story about somebody who is in a comfortable place to date women. So those were kind of the two things that I ended up really wanting to do with the characters. And then we got we got some great representation that we didn't totally know what we were going to get in Nelly as well because we left that casting call really, really open just to sort of see what would happen. And we ended up with uh, Nadine Alamami, who is 
an absolutely fantastic actor who brings lots of extra dimensionality to that role. What a joy. What a charming actor. She is a constant delight and light of our rehearsals. <laughs> and basically, once I heard her audition, I was like, okay, we're, we're cool. We're good. We're done. I have another 60 of these to listen to, but cool. We got it. <laughs> Which is always a really great feeling to get to have. Alex, what about you? For me, when I, um, I think when we were developing it in late 2016, early 2017-ish, I was, a lot of it was just sort of spite writing <laughs> Miranda as an Asian asexual character because it was during the time frame when we saw a lot of uh, white watching from Hollywood and a lot of Asian roles being taken away by white women. And a big part of the early episode, I would say, no, we're not driven by spite, but there was definitely a bit of sort of anger simmering within me as I was sort of just working through the first couple of scripts to say, you know, if no one's going to do this shit, I'll do it myself because fuck Hollywood and fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, I identify as asexual and that's something that I've sort of been reconcil- re- reconciliating with my own identity and my own culture for a while. I don't expect the wider media to represent me and I don't re- really expect them to represent me in an accurate way that actually brings nuance of cultural backgrounds and cultural expectations of being an asexual woman. And the way that um, a lot of us sort of are required to think about marriage and family from our parents and from our extended relatives and how that sort of, how we have to reconciliate that with not feeling any sort of attraction sexually or romantically. That was something that I wanted to explore in Miranda. Ultimately, we didn't have time to do that in season one. Ultimately, I do want to do that in season two or possibly season three. And that was actually a main goal when I set out to write a station to station. But, you know, plot happened and we just had to deal with that. <laughs> but it was something that Andrea said early on was that the none of our three protagonists are what you would call typically straight. And none of them actually conform to, you know, heteronormativity in that sense. And that is something that we wanted to explore. And when we have, I guess, more narrative space for character development in season two, that is something we want to, I guess, draw out a bit. Yeah, I never got the sense through season one that Miranda's connection with Jonathan was motivated by any kind of romantic or sexual love. I mean, I I think that she loves him and cares about him a great deal, but I I never thought that it was like, I'm going on this mission to rescue my boyfriend kind of thing. Mm -hmm. No. Weirdly enough, (laughs) um, I mean, there has been interpretation of Miranda and Fredrickson as slightly shifty or sexual tension, which what uh, was not something we expected or intended to write, given that she basically stabs him in the neck. Oh no, that's another spoiler. <laughs> is it love or is it just menace? <laughs> uh, yeah. That was a fun fan reaction that came completely out the left field. I had me blinking at the screen for, for five minutes going, what? No. What if the pen is a metaphor? <laughs> but a metaphor for what, David? For like the wellspring of emotions 
that like ink are locked inside of her that she jams into his neck. <laughs> this feels like a very, very different kind of shit, like a blue velvet kind of thing. <laughs> and I'm not sure we're prepared to go down. That's fine. God. I had a question about 720 Alpha. Oh, God. What does it mean to you that 720 Alpha was found at the bottom of the sea? Like, is there something about what the bottom of the ocean feels like uh, that speaks to you? I mean, there's a lot of what isn't at the bottom of the sea. If anything, if any kind of eldritch horror should come from this ass, it would be from the bottom of the ocean. It was there before us. It was there after us. We are here as this guest. And as its guests, we just have to deal with the inane, horrifying shit that it will throw at us. <laughs> it's um, That is basically my approach to the sea, the forest, and the stars. One quote that I remember is from the comic book adaptation of a book series called Rivers of London. So the context of that is that there are two characters discussing a typically Russian folklore uh, cryptid or creature sort of ended up in London forests. And one kind of asked how that happened. How did something from Russia end up in the UK? And the answer in quote was, it all used to be the same forest when the channel was dry and the trees marched from St. David's to Vladivostok. The trees still remember that time and so do the creatures that live amongst them. They still remember it was they who had dominion. Now, Vladivostok is like the furthest east point of Russia that borders on, I think it's China or Korea. But in any case, the idea of the fact that you know the, the natural elements of the earth is so much older than we are and so much more horrifying than we are, and it attains the memory of being an ancient, almost eldritch, almost godlike being. That's what the forest and what the bottom of the ocean feels like to me. And so, of course, if you find something horrifying, nature-defying, physics-defying thing, it would be on the bottom of the ocean and you would have been there for a very, very long time, just waiting for someone to go down there and fuck with the nature of things. <laughs> Andrea, do you have bottom of the ocean thoughts? No, that would be pretty accurate to what I think, too. Um, I think there was originally a time in the sort of plotting of Station to Station where, at least in my head, we were writing about a much more um, anthropomorphized horror than we ended up with. We ended up with something that is very, very much man-made, technological. But I do think it kind of sprang out of that idea that there's something, like, spooky and primordial about places that you just, you can't see and you can't really imagine and that have been there forever. Is there anything else you want to talk about or the things that I've I've neglected to cover that you were interested in discussing? Is there anything you want to ask me? Oh, we could talk a bit more about season two if anybody's down for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think about season two? I'm excited. I, um, I'm taking, I was going to say, I'm taking the hard job from Alex, but she had to write a pilot. I just have to write a season opener. It is so much easier because you know who these people are already. Thank God. Um, but we we have our first episode, at least in a stage where I can look at it without having to sort of cover my eyes and go, oh God, oh God. Is the format going to change for season two? We're playing with things. 
As of as of recording, we just finished episode one. We have a few things stapled and a few things concrete for episode for for the rest of the episodes. We want to expand it more. I mean, we bring the characters back to land, and plot-wise, we are just sort of expanding the locations and settings they can go to. But story-wise and emotionally-wise, sort of bringing them back to reality. When they were on that cruise, it was very enclosed. It was like they were cut off from the rest of society. Now they have to go back and try to be human beings again. Mm-hmm. Trying to remember how you know how to go back to their old lives and reconciliate with the fact that, well, Miranda just had uh, the biggest loss of her life. Nelly and Riva, additionally, they also discovered this sort of huge reality-warping, physics-defying project that was being held that was being conducted by one of the biggest tech organizations in the world Mm -hmm. and i think it loops back around to what you were talking about earlier alex with this idea of things that can be frustrating about conspiracy thrillers are this idea that once the protagonist has uncovered the conspiracy we're good to go but in a world where you can't just shoot guns at the conspiracy until the conspiracy stops being a conspiracy, <laughs> how do you try to deal with having uncovered something like that as a person who is part of, you know, say an institutional system like the FBI in Reva's case, or just sort of a free agent reporter in Nellie's case, or in Miranda's case, you know, part of a different scientific system. Like how, how as an individual who is really basically just a normal person who is not Liam Neeson, how do you do this? And that's a big question for us in season two. Will the characters have to wrangle with their various bureaucracies? Like will, will Riva have to deal with the FBI as like a force for injustice as she seeks to like pursue justice? Yeah, it's kind of that. It's, it's you know, um, when you come up against something like that, are our systems set up to deal with it is kind of the question. And in some cases, maybe not so much, especially if there are easier avenues to go down. <laughs> Alex, is there stuff you want to add? That's pretty much it. Oh, something that I forgot to add when I was rambling about business jargon was that for season two, we have two flashback episodes. One is uh, called Forward Looking Statements and one is called Succession Planning. And for those two, we actually wanted to sort of look at perspective and narrative reliability. The phrase forward looking statements. Is, it's actually a legal disclosure. The full context is that forward-looking statements are not indicative of historical fact and should not be taken to be predictive of future business model and so on and so forth. It's something that um, public corporations put out to, I think, to um, save themselves from legal trouble if um, they have a, a, a press release and people buy stocks, they're based on that and so on. Uh, the context of that episode is that we wanted to play with not memory, but perception and sort of play with the audience expectations of how and why we trust a narrator to be the narrator to tell the story. Yeah, that is an episode that I'm fairly excited to do. It all sounds very complex and challenging <laughs> and interesting. And I'll be very excited to hear it. Awesome. Thanks, you two, for joining me. I think this has been really lovely. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much, folks. That was fun. Oh, right. So to translate something Andrea said during the interview that perhaps warrants a little glossing or maybe future proofing, she said, if there's a ship, I'll stan it. And maybe y'all are internet-y enough to comprehend that, but maybe it's like 30 years from now and you're an archivist entering radio drama revival into the Library of Congress, and before all of us can receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Eve Ewing, look her up, you, the future librarian, need to finish one last footnote on this darn 2010 slang. So, a ship. It's a noun, basic Tumblr speech. It's a relationship, whether real or longed for. Uh, the verb to stan comes from, of all places, an Eminem song called Stan about an obsessive fan. It means you're fanatically devoted to something, to the point where it actually becomes a little dangerous. So when Andrea says, if there's a ship, I'll stan it, it means she'll defend a possible romance between characters to the death. In other words, she's willing to go down with a ship. <laughs> Sorry. You can find Station to Station on your favorite podcatching service, and you can contribute to the Station to Station Patreon at patreon.com slash station to station. That's station, the numeral two, and station, again. And as long as you're there, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. A dollar gets you into our Discord chat channel, where you too can live out the fantasy of being asked uncomfortable probing questions by me, such as... Would you want to live in space? Like, here's my thing, I don't want to die having never seen another tree, you know? Or, where would you go? What in space would you most want to see? My answer is, of course, a nebula. And again, weirdo David Jeopardy, the pride and joy of all sapient beings. All of that, patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And remember, visit our website, radiodramarevival.com, to submit a shout-out for your anniversary or business or piece of microfiction you want me to read during the show. And now, credits. Our theme music is Danger Digi-Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreau. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. Oh no! Oh no! That's a spicy town meatball. David, okay. Your old gas yard tools have met their match. Right now, the Home Depot has Father's Day savings on the Ego 56 volt cordless trimmer and blower combo kit, just 249 bucks. It has the performance of gas without the hassle. It's two powerful tools powered by a 56-volt lithium-ion battery platform, and right now, it's at a price no one can match. Today is the day for doing with the Ego Trimmer and Blower Combo, just $249, only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing, while supplies last. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? 
Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease.